What you just heard was an excerpt from the new song for President Trump entitled Make America Great Again. It's from the choir of First Baptist Church of Dallas at a pre-Fourth of July celebration called Celebrate Freedom. When the singing was over, the pastor of First Baptist Dallas, Robert Jeffress, got up to preach. He spoke of the despair that many Christians felt at the idea that many people didn't believe that America was a Christian nation. They wondered, he said, Is God finished with America? Are our best days over? Has God removed his hand of blessing from us? But in the midst of that despair came November the 8th, 2016. Because it was on that day, November 8th, that God declared that the people, not the pollsters, were going to choose the next president of the United States. And they chose Donald Trump. Then the president took the stage. After about 15 minutes of congratulating himself for winning and for crushing the media, he said, In America, America, we don't don't worship government, we worship God. The crowd unironically responded by chanting, Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. You just heard Tyler Stanley, and I'm Gerhard Steuben. We're glad you're listening. Consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, and maybe even support us on Patreon so we can afford to keep putting out our best content. And for those of you who do support us on Patreon, first of all, thanks. And we're going to release some extra content as well. It'll be a discussion between Tyler and I with today's guest, Jake Robbie, about how to live wisely and faithfully as a Christian in America. Donald Trump's presidency didn't create the American conflation of God and country, though it certainly revived it. I lived in Memphis, Tennessee throughout my high school years, where in 2006, a megachurch in the area erected a 72-foot-tall replica of the Statue of Liberty. But this one carries a cross instead of a torch. It holds the Ten Commandments in its hands. Across her crown was the word Jehovah. And side note, Jehovah is not a word. She had a single tear dripping from her right eye, and on the pedestal it reads, America, return to Christ. They call it the Statue of Liberation through Christ. And Americans have put God next to country since, well, since the beginning. Our friend Jake Robbie does a lot of research in American religious history, You may remember him from our episode on the Didache, where he told us about how Thomas Jefferson was a dirty, rotten deist. Damn it, Tyler. Thomas Jefferson wasn't a true deist. He believed, like most people in his time, that God could and did intervene in history. We've invited Jake back to tell us about how the terms American and Christian came to mean basically the same thing. So, Jake, before we start, can you give us a drink recommendation? What's your favorite thing to drink when studying 
American Patriotism and Religion. So when I'm studying this, I like to drink Shock Tops Lemon Shandy because uh, it's a shocking and good tasting beverage. It's generally pleasant as long as you don't give it a lot of thought. Tell us a little bit about the origins of American folk religion. Have America's always made God and country their motivation in life? Did we borrow that idea from the Brits before seceding? So this idea of God and country has always been a part of the American DNA, even before America was its own independent nation. Uh, the roots of it do go back to um, the experience of the colonists in Britain, but I think it goes back even farther than that, all the way back to the Reformation. And one thing you'll notice when you start reading in the Reformation is a tendency by a lot of reformers to sort of allegorize different passages from the Bible to be about the Catholic Church playing the role of different biblical villains, with the reformers being a sort of faithful remnant. And you can find these um, allegories that portray the Bible as sort of predicting the exodus of the Protestants from the Catholic Church. Uh, that impulse to read the Bible in that sort of historical allegory resurfaced when a um, century later you have dissenters starting to try to break off from the Church of England, the official state Protestant church there. Um, and as these dissenters sort of started to have issues with the way the Church of England handled different practices and different ways of interacting with government, they started to do the same, um, the same idea of reading the Bible to see the Catholic Church or the Anglican establishment, uh, whichever one may be the case in their area, as the sort of grand evil uh, entity that the Bible predicts them exiting from. Hmm. So in the colonial period before America becomes its own nation, uh, you probably remember from your history classes that we fought a war called the French and Indian War before the uh, American Revolution, where the British citizens living in the U.S. fought against the French citizens living in Quebec for control over some territories. Um, and in that, you can see uh, all sorts of examples of colonial sermons that talk about the French as representative of the Catholic Church and how the Bible predicts in passages like Revelation's Beast and things like this, some of Daniel's visions. Um, they get this idea that the Bible foretells the American Protestants defeating the French um, Catholics. And there's this idea that the French Catholics, with their papal superstitions and their hierarchies of authority, stand for oppression. And that the British Anglican Church, with its sort of simpler tiers and with its maybe more familiar styles of liturgy and all these things come to represent freedom. Well, when the Americans, um, 50 years down the road, start to become disenfranchised with the British and become ready to break away, they replay this historical allegory before, except instead of um, the beast character in their allegory being the Catholic Church, it's now the Anglican establishment in England. Hmm. So that's a long way to answer your question, but that's all to say that this sort of reading of the Bible to see how God is on our political side has always existed, but Americans really took it to an art form uh, around the time of the American Revolution. Do you, can you tell us anything about how um, Zionist prophecies were used in like the early 20th century? I've heard uh, some people talk about like reading of um, scripture that we might associate with people like John Hagee about how Israel's coming back and ushering the end of times, how that was in like elite American reading um, that lots of presidents subscribe to. Could you tell us anything about that? Sure. Um, so that sort of, that this sort of resurgence of this kind of historical, allegorical way of reading history to talk about modern political events 
um, really dies down to a certain extent in the mid 1800s and really picks back up when you have probably what you can trace it back to is um, John Nelson Darby and the Schofield Reference Bible and the rise of premillennial dispensationalism as a way of reading the Bible and interpreting history. Can you describe premillennial dispensationalism just a bit for someone who might not yeah, know? Yeah, sure. So premillennial dispensationalism is a big word for something that you're probably already pretty familiar with. If you've read the Left Behind books, you're familiar with this way of reading the Bible. And it's basically a way of reading the Bible. It starts off in Scotland, but moves to America pretty quickly with the publication of, like I referenced a book called the Schofield Reference Bible. And the short version of it is that uh, the Bible divides world history into these seven distinct periods uh, where God interacts with the world differently. And we don't need to go into huge detail on how that works for our discussion here, but the main point is it sort of brought back this interest in reading the Bible to sort of predict current events or talk about some sort of spiritual unseen forces that might be at work behind current events. Uh, it does take hold in America, maybe not as much as we might think. I would say it's probably more prominent in the later half of the 20th century thanks to the Left Behind books and people like John Hagee. Um, but in the early part of the 20th century, uh, you have the rise of fundamentalism in America and um, premillennial dispensationalism is really heavily associated with fundamentalism. Hmm. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be something that a lot of maybe higher class or richer Americans would have subscribed to. It was definitely more of a grassroots movement. Um, hmm. But nevertheless, it did exert a pretty big amount of influence on sort of American life and thought and even foreign policy to some extent up until um, about the 40s when it dies down again until the 70s. So could you tell us a bit about what happened in the early 70s? I have a story about George Bush that I'm just dying to tell, but I want to hear if there's anything before Bush. It does go back before Bush. Um, so we get the rise, not surprisingly, we get the rise of this way of thinking about history that was really associated with fundamentalism. Um, when we get the second wave of fundamentalism in the 70s. And that's really associated with the characters that we think about today as the famous fundamentalists, the, uh, the Jerry Falwells and the Oral Roberts and things like these, um, where a sort of disgruntled conservative element within um, American Christianity is reacting against some of these cultural shifts that happened in the 60s and start this new sort of conservative resurgence across American Christianity. Uh, so yeah, you can probably trace that back to the 70s with guys like Falwell and Roberts. Nice. Uh, as mentioned, there is an amazing story about George Bush. I'm excited. Uh, this is this junior. George W? Okay. Yeah, junior. this is Deb, Deb. The big Deb. Uh, he, so I was listening to this lecture by Noam Chomsky um, about the war in Iraq and someone asked him if he thinks that this is during George w bush's presidency and someone asks him if he thinks that george bush is a christ-like president and chomsky just thinks that's the stupidest question in the history of questions and then he goes off on the political edge of the american right-wing religious christian groups and uh tells the story that's apparently true you're not going to believe it but it's apparently true that when George Bush was trying to get Jacques Chirac to join him in his efforts to, you know, overthrow Iraq or whatever, the way he did that... Bring freedom to Iraq. That's right. Bring freedom and stop them from their weapons of mass destruction and liberate their oil and all that. Yeah. Uh, 
that when he was trying to convince Chirac to join him in his war efforts, uh, he appealed to Revelation and Ezekiel that he was ushering in the end times by defeating Gog and Magog, which were, you know, Saddam Hussein and all his allies. And Chirac had to find some theologian to interpret Bush's ramblings to him. That actually happened. I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, one of the most popular uh, Christian nonfiction books in the 80s and 90s was Hal Lindsey's uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, which was about that exactly. Um, now the nation state of Israel's here, and this is how Russia and China are going to come in and invade it, and how Ezekiel tells us all about that. Um, nice. Which the whole Israel thing brings up just a whole complete, you know, other dynamic to the story, which you brought up Zionism, but like the modern nation state of israel brought into american politics where you know we have to make israel a state and we have to you know keep those muslims out of israel so that they can you know usher in the kingdom of god um and just the you know human rights violations that are going on there are insane but this is all justified because you know, America and Israel have God on their side, so we can do these things, and you are not allowed to critique them. If anyone's interested, there's a really great documentary on Netflix called Waiting for Armageddon uh, that <laughs> tells the story of how basically um, the sort of evangelical Christian anticipation of violence and war in the Middle East directly caused violence and war in the Middle East in the 2000s. Nice. Is there... Do we find any kind of parallels to this with, you know, the um, uh, slaughter of the Native Americans? I mean, are they saying God is on our side, we're ushering in the kingdom of God, so we're allowed to commit these acts against the natives? That's a really fascinating um, question and sort of area of early American studies that doesn't get quite enough attention is the way that um, the early Christian settlers conceived of the Native Americans. And this is another one of those things that you're probably not going to believe, so let me try and back up and give enough context. So try and imagine what it would have been like to be just your average person living in the early 1500s and onward when the continent that would become North America is first discovered. It would be like if today we were able to somehow achieve a space flight that would allow us to go to Mars and start to colonize that. It was absolutely worldview shifting for people that suddenly a new continent existed that nobody had known about before. And as a result, people start to think about the new world, as they called it, in a really apocalyptic sense. Uh, and so this is where I say there becomes a really strange and interesting way of dealing with the Native Americans. Um, so people back then, and this is a little bit more my theory than a, something I can directly prove, but... People back then wouldn't necessarily have had access to a lot of resources on anthropology or history or geography. Sort of the one book that everybody had a sort of common access to was the Bible. So people come to this new world and they see a race of people that nobody knows who they are. And what becomes the common assumption about them, believe it or not, is one of two things. They are the lost ten tribes of Israel that just sort of disappear in the Old Testament resurfacing here um that belief is actually what's going to undergird in the early 1800s the start of mormonism or as it would move to later there the canaanites moved and resurfaced in a new oh, wow. country so um that's super interesting yeah, yeah so and this is where you get this really sad kind of heartbreaking shift to read in primary sources and early american stuff 
in the 1600s, uh, when you get sort of the height of missions to the Native American people, uh, they tend to be talked about as sort of like idyllic people that haven't been touched yet by the modern world or sin and all these things, and there's really high hopes for them. They talk about them as these sort of new Adam and new Eve characters, or as these lost tribes of Israel that can now be brought back to the fold. When it becomes clear that they're not all going to instantly convert to Christianity, you get that shift to their Canaanites. And we can supply, obviously, a wealth of examples from the Bible or prescriptions from the Old Testament about how a person can deal with a Canaanite. And so a lot of the mistreatment of Indians would have happened anyways, but the justification is these are Canaanites, and Scripture gives us the ability to do that to these people. Now, I say again that probably sounds strange to just assume that these people are this old character from the Bible picked up, but I remember distinctly um, talking to a pastor once about um, what was going on in the Middle East and why I was uncomfortable with the way that Muslims were being treated by both American citizens in the U.S. and American soldiers overseas. And what the pastor told me was that they were descendants of Ishmael from the Old Testament. And when I did some looking into it, that's a pretty common belief that Muslims are Ishmaelites. There's obviously no reason to make that jump. Nothing in the Bible or history would cause you to connect those people groups. But we do the same thing today. We justify uh, persecutions of people that are inconvenient to us by appeals to some historical or sacred text. Most of our listeners probably understand quite a bit about what being a Canaanite meant to an, like a Hebrew Bible Jew at the time. Um, but for those who might just be listening and not be as familiar with Old Testament texts, can you give some examples of how a Canaanite would have been treated by a Jew that you're thinking of? I'm really thinking of, I'm just trying to put it delicately, but the book of Joshua and the idea of the harem or the band, um, the sort of devote them over to total destruction. And that's a thing that starts to play a large Uh, role in the American mindset in the early 1700s and moving on to the 1800s is the Bible says to completely wipe out this people and here they are um, kill them right right. in the earlier time periods there's a really literal thought these are Canaanites the Bible says kill Canaanites so we can kill them and as we get a little bit more sophistication in the way we think about the Native Americans moving into the 1800s they become a type that we treat the same way Okay. So by the 1800s, we're not thinking these are literally Canaanites, but they are Canaanite-like. Hmm. Okay. So they're symbolically Canaanite. Right. So just to clarify all of this, everything you're saying about um, you know settlers treating the natives as if they were Canaanites, whether metaphorically or literally, this is all you know undergirding their claim that that God was behind this, supporting this through and through that that God wanted America to become great to become you know the world's empire to police the world essentially that's exactly right the thought of the early americans was that they stood for the cause of liberty and that liberty was ultimately god's cause and so the americans were standing for god and the american revolution where they were able to overthrow the great beast of britain um really solidified this idea for Americans for generations to come that they were God's people. They were the new Israel, as they like to uh, call themselves in the colonial era. And I'd say that's a common theme ever since um, in American religious history is this idea that God wants America to become a world power. God has blessed America especially. That's really interesting and really 
honestly ironic you know we have that meme that we see around on the internet you know usually joking not always but you know pictures of bombers just dropping tons literally tons of bombs onto onto countries with the text over the picture america delivering freedom to these countries and that's exactly what we're doing to the natives calling it liberation um but ultimately it's genocide so that ties into the next part of our discussion america is the greatest imperial power the world has ever seen we spend more on our military than the next seven countries combined that's 37 percent of the entire world's military spending oh and just to throw in a fun fact uh Canada doesn't actually keep a very substantial military at any point. They've got a really small military operation and a really tiny percentage of their national uh, income spent on the military, specifically because they share a border with America, who has such an absurdly large military. <laughs> so Canada's benefited economically just leaps and bounds from not having to have a military. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> Christians had a lot to say about the Empire, and you won't be surprised to find out that they weren't exactly fans. You probably know that Roman emperors often persecuted Christians for their faith, but the details might be a little different than you think. Persecution wasn't quite as common as you'd expect. When there was a persecution, it was usually sporadic and it took place only in certain pockets of the Empire. It wasn't until Decius in 249 CE that Christians were persecuted everywhere throughout the empire. But don't get me wrong, Christians were constantly aware of the possibility of persecution. But there were times when emperors were relatively tolerant. Even Diocletian had Christians in his own household, his wife and daughters even. And this is the guy that eventually started the nightmare that came to be known as the Great Persecution in the early 300s. We talk about him a bit in our episode on Emperor Constantine, if you want to know more about him. That episode also has a lot of information about Christianity and the Empire under the Christian Constantine, so I'd encourage you to check that out. At any rate, you may be surprised to know that emperors weren't all that concerned if you worshipped Jesus. They didn't like it, but worshipping Jesus wasn't the main problem. What they wanted was a unified empire, and unity came through common religion. You see, the gods are protectors of the nation, and the citizens of the nation must offer sacrifices to the gods in order to keep their favor. And emperors wanted their citizens to worship the gods, and along with that came the requirement to swear by the genius of the emperor. This is often understood as emperor worship, and that's true, but it's a little more complicated than that. The genius of the emperor, sometimes called the fortune of the emperor, was more than just the man who sat on a throne. We don't really know a lot about what the genius was, 
St. Augustine compared it to the human soul, but it was even more complex than that. Sometimes it was spoken of sort of like a guardian angel. For the emperor, it was, in a way, the spirit of the office rather than the man, an occult formed around the genius. But they didn't worship the man in this cult. They worshipped the genius. And if you press them, they'd say that they didn't necessarily worship the genius of the emperor, they honored him. And if that distinction seems a bit ridiculous to you, then you're right. They basically worship the emperor. But to make matters more confusing, emperor worship wasn't really demanded from the emperors. Instead, the officials of certain towns or provinces would build statues and hold celebrations to honor the emperor. And emperors tend to be narcissists, just like today, so he'd give those cities special honors and privileges. As each town tried to one-up the other in their patriotic displays of love for emperor and empire, it eventually just became straight-up emperor worship. You could almost say that the emperor worship was something of an accident. That's at least what most likely happened with Emperor Domitian, who was the first to be called divine during his own lifetime, and he's the emperor against whom the book of Revelation is written. Most emperors since Augustus were divinized, or became divine, only after they had died. But don't think of them as Jupiter or Apollo. It was mostly honorific. The deified dead emperors didn't still issue orders or anything like that. Now, any patriots who hear this might be thinking, I don't worship the president, I just respect the office. And to that, I would say, that's pretty much what the Romans thought when they accidentally created a cult. Of course, Paul told us in Romans 13 to honor the emperor, and we should, insofar as it is appropriate. But there's a difference between honoring a person and refusing to challenge their authority. Remember, Paul was murdered by the state for refusing to obey it. The book of Revelation is the most overtly anti-emperor, anti-empire book that has ever been written. The amount of immorality that we have to just ignore in order to respect Donald Trump as a person is astounding. The news that comes out every day about some new absurd and inappropriate thing that happens, and the amount of justification that comes out on Twitter and Facebook and from your relatives is just, frankly, absurd. I mean, he's a baby Christian, right? So he can do whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> Says James Dobson, the family pastor to most of our parents, if you grew up evangelical. So what you're saying is the guy whose ministry is named Focus on the Family literally justified a uh, sexual assaulter? That's exactly right. Hmm. Interesting. He has been to church twice since he's been in office, though. That's good. Uh, last time I saw, so... He hasn't ever sinned, so... I'm glad he's just going. He did say he doesn't need forgiveness. Like one of our professors used to say, he's as good as Jesus and getting better every day. Amen.
In the ancient world, where political and religious powers were essentially the same, where the emperor is understood as a messenger and enforcer of the laws of the gods, it isn't a very big leap to view the emperor, or at least the office of the emperor, as in some way divine. And in case you think this is just ancient, primitive, pre-enlightenment people, consider the case of Benito Mussolini, the infamous Italian dictator. Arnaldo Mamigliano's essay, How Roman Emperors Became Gods, begins with a description of Mussolini's reconciliation with the Pope in 1929. Quote, There were in Rome such tremendous popular demonstrations, whether orchestrated from above or from below. Mussolini became overnight the man of providence, and in such an inconvenient position he remained for many years. End quote. Momigliano tells the story of Abby Warburg, a famous German art historian who was present at the celebrations, who said about the events, quote, You know that throughout my life I've been interested in the revival of paganism and pagan festivals. Today I had the chance of my life to be present at the re-paganization of Rome. End quote. Momigliano goes on to write, Warburg's remarks may help to explain to people why some of the most original scholarly work on the Roman imperial cult should have been done around the years 1929 to 34, in that ambiguous atmosphere of the revival of emperor worship, in which it was difficult to separate adulation from political emotion and political emotion from religious or superstitious excitement. As Jake explained earlier, Americans have long confused this nation with the kingdom of God. In Christian circles, I'm afraid we're nowhere near recovering from that heresy, and I don't use the term heresy lightly. In fact, I, like Momigliano, have a hard time seeing the difference between worship of the crucified Christ and the inaugurated president. President Trump held his first full cabinet meeting on June 12th. You can watch videos of cabinet members going around the room one by one praising the president, thanking him for the opportunity and the honor to serve. The chair of the Republican National Convention is particularly noteworthy, Reince Priebus, who thanked the president for, quote, the opportunity and the blessing that you've given us to serve your agenda and the American people. The difference between genius and agenda is hard to find. The difference between political emotion and religious superstition is hard to find. I recently read an article, an amazing little article, in the Commonweal magazine about how we arrived at Trump, and the conclusion was incredibly enlightening. It was titled, Jesus Freaks and Donald Trump, the Evangelical Martyr Complex in Song. In it, Julia Marley argues that the 90s evangelical martyr fascination, so perfectly epitomized by the Jesus Freak movement, 
is one of the most important factors that has led us to the white nationalist, oh, sorry, Freudian slip. I mean white evangelical worship of Donald J. Trump and his high priest, Michael Richard Pence. Anyone who grew up with the song and its slew of accompanying merchandise will instantly feel the truth of this claim. Marley points out that as evangelicals began to lose power in American politics, they interpreted this fact as persecution, and therefore began to claim the church's martyrs from all times and all places as their own spiritual family. Just like early Christians were thrown to lions for practicing their faith, goes the thinking, so we are now being excluded from society for practicing ours. But what exactly does that evangelical exclusion in that faith practicing mean? When evangelicals say they are excluded because they're practicing their faith, what that normally means is that they don't have the exclusive power to enforce what faith other people practice. No one is saying you can't say Merry Christmas, just don't expect your Muslim cashier to say it back to you. No one is saying you can't abstain from eating out on Sundays, as if, but just don't try to enforce your beliefs on the rest of the country with your blue laws. And that, I think, gets to the heart of the modern martyr complex in the evangelical right. Unless we have ultimate power and universal control, we are being persecuted. One of the reasons evangelicals so fervently supported Trump is that he was going to make America great again, meaning to them, give evangelicals back their power. Let me read you some real, unedited lines from His Holiness the Trump. Quote, The power of our group of people together, and he's talking to Christians here, I mean, if you add it up, it could be 240, 250 million. And yet we don't exert the power that we should have. Now I think some of the churches are afraid of their tax status, to be honest. Next quote. But you know, the fact is that there is nothing the politicians can't do to you if you band together. You have too much power. But the Christians don't use their power. Next quote. We have to strengthen because we are getting, if you look, it's death by a million cuts. We are getting less and less and less powerful in terms of a religion and in terms of a force. Yes, he really did say that. And yes, evangelicals with a martyr complex really did eat that shit up. Feeling as if we had long been sitting on the sidelines, self-congratulatory about our big fat bellies and Jesus saves tattoos, we were going to once again get that power. Our persecution consisted of losing power, of losing the right to push everyone else around with our religious rules. Our response to this, quote, persecution, respond to imagined violence with violent rhetoric, sometimes even by real violence, and regain the America that was never really ours by force. The Trump agenda, for scores of white evangelicals, was the twisted perversion of a martyr complex gone astray. Unlike today's America-worshipping, power-worshipping, culture-worshipping evangelicals, though, the early Christians respond to the real persecution with love and grace and peace. They weren't just asked to allow people with other religions to practice their horror of horrors faith. They were literally killed for their peaceable ways. Sometime around 170 CE, the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was arrested for his faith. He was given a choice, swear by the genius of Caesar, the emperor, or die. 
He was taken to the arena, and as they led him closer to the sound of the crowds, cheering and begging for more blood, eager to watch animals rip someone else apart, the proconsul tried to persuade Polycarp to make the pledge to escape death. Polycarp responded, If you are so foolish to think that I will swear by the genius of the emperor, as you say, and if you pretend not to know who I am, listen closely. I'm a Christian. Polycarp died that day. From the earliest Christian text in the Latin language, we find the story of the skeleton martyrs. On July 17, 180 CE, 12 Christians, men and women from the North African town of Scilly, were brought before Saturninus, the governor of Carthage. They were charged with being Christians and refusing to swear by the emperor. They had one of two choices, swear by the emperor or lose your head. As the governor tried to persuade the Christians to make the pledge, one of the Christians named Spiritus responded, I do not acknowledge the authority of this world, but I rather serve that God whom no one has seen or can see with these eyes. One by one, each of the Christians resolutely proclaimed their faith in Christ, knowing what would happen next. The last lines of the text read, Saturninus, the governor, ordered a herald to declare this sentence. I have ordered Spiritus, Narcillus, Satinus, Viturius, Felix, Aquilinus, Latantius, Januaria, Generosa, Vestia, Donata, and Secunda to be executed. Then they all said, Thanks to God and immediately they were decapitated for the name of Christ. In one of our most treasured martyrdom accounts, The Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas, Perpetua tells the story of her own imprisonment in the year 202 CE. The procurator, Hilarianus, said to her, Spare the gray hairs of your father, spare the infancy of your boy, offer sacrifice, to the well-being of the emperors. She replied, I will not do so. Hilarianus asked, Are you a Christian? I am a Christian, she said. Soon after, Perpetua was led with her companion Felicitas to the stadium of Carthage, where they were cut down by the sword. early Christians were willing to suffer for their faith, and ultimately I think that every Christian ought to be willing to suffer for their faith. I think everyone listening, and including all of the people that we're talking about on this podcast would agree, we should be willing to suffer within ourselves. We should be willing to put to death within us the patriotism, the idolatry, all of the anti-Christian things in our culture. And yes, that means we might be excluded by the great persecuted masses. The masses that have their Freedom Sundays and their Celebrate Freedom. If we have to be persecuted by the people who loudly proclaim their own persecution, so be it. And this is the great irony of it all. These masses of Americans who believe they're being persecuted, these people who are gaining power from the empire, 
are doing the exact opposite of what our Christian ancestors did. Our Christian ancestors refused to honor the emperor, and they were murdered for it. And so many in our contemporary culture are willingly offering sacrifices to the emperor and the empire. Not only that, but they are benefiting from those sacrifices. And if you look at the message of Revelation, particularly in chapter 18, you will see that the condemnation doesn't just extend to the wicked empire. It extends to the people who have gotten in bed with the empire. Revelation 18 says that the merchants and the sellers and traders all mourn at their fate because they have lost their way to make profit. They have lost their means to power simply because they got in bed with a false god. Now, lest you're on the liberal side of the political spectrum and you find yourself feeling a bit of schadenfreude, joy at the expense of your enemy's pain, we have some thoughts for you too. The emperor worship goes both ways. Liberal Christians still pine for the days when Obama was in office, and any critique of Hillary Clinton is absolutely forbidden. But remember that most of the things Trump promised to do back in his campaign are the things that Obama did regularly. He deported more immigrants, ordered more drone strikes against civilians, and prosecuted more whistleblowers than any other president before him. The guy was a tyrant, and our fellow millennials are too impressed with his Instagram account to allow any legitimate critique. And Hillary was well on her way to becoming even more of a hawk than he was. Whether or not they are better than Trump is irrelevant to the fact that they do not deserve our worship. Absolutely no authority is self-legitimating except for God's. The idolatry of First Baptist Church Dallas is more blatant and shocking than normal. But that gross display of paganism is not actually that different from what you might find at a typical American church. We may not sing Make America Great Again, but we sure as hell love our America Beautifuls and God Bless Americas. The church I grew up in used to have its own little Freedom Sunday each year, on Memorial Day I think. They played the anthems of each branch of the military and honored their service. My church was no FBC Dallas. But my church, and I bet your church, has the same problem with incipient idolatry. Is there an American flag on your church's altar? And if so, what would happen if someone suggested that it be removed? You know, for the very controversial and inflammatory reason that the church isn't an American institution. I know exactly what would happen. A sizable portion of your church would flip a literal shit. A literal metaphorical shit. <laughs> your pastor would be inundated with emails about how she's not supporting the troops and how he's not grateful for his American freedoms. Translated into normal speech, why aren't you worshiping America? I'm in my very last month of seminary, and one discussion I had last semester struck me in the worst possible way. Like a literal shit? Like a literal <laughs> shit. <laughs> you should definitely leave that. But cut me saying yep. that we should leave it. Yep. Or just leave that. I'm going to leave all of this. <laughs> I was in a preaching class, and the discussion shifted to when it's appropriate to challenge your church's morals and when it's not. 
That was my first cue that something was deeply, deeply wrong with the assumptions in the room. The professor was explaining to us that if you always go around pointing out the moral issues in your church, people are going to get tired of you and fire you. You have to know what battles are worth fighting, he said. The case in point, the flag. We all know churches shouldn't have flags on their altars, was the common thought in the room. But if you point out to your church that that's an idolatrous thing, then you're likely to lose your job. The wise thing to do, therefore, is to overlook that moral failure in your church so you can save your relational capital for the real problems you need to address. Aside from the question of what could be more of a real problem than a church literally worshiping someone or something alongside Jesus, and besides the problem of thinking that somehow keeping your job as a church leader is more important than insisting on authentic Christian living, why was this particular issue one that we were all supposed to assume could never be brought up by a pastor? Why was the flag on the altar so important to people that it jumped to all of our minds as the way to write your one-way ticket out of a church job? As it should be obvious to everyone by now, it's because we all know the evangelical church is idolatrous and no one seems to care. <laughs>